Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm chatting with Clary Estes, a photographer and writer. Welcome, Clary. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. What first took you abroad? And could you tell us a brief history of your life overseas? Where have you been and where are you planning on going next? So I think my first kind of discernible time abroad, I spent a summer in China at an art residency, and that's kind of where I first really got into photography in a serious way. And I remember being terrified when I went because it was the first time that I had been away from home and outside of the United States for longer than a week. And I was completely by myself. But it was very informative. It was followed up by a few other international trips to Europe through school scholarship programs that were shorter, but still very enlightening. I had gotten a chance to go to both Paris and Berlin and check things out. And the whole scholarship was to go to museums and historic sites and just get sort of a cultural education while I was there. But the first time I moved and lived abroad for a long period of time was when I moved to Japan. I had studied Japanese in undergrad, and I had a degree that was in part Japanese studies. So I had a a very strong history in studying post-war Japanese art, and I had gone to grad school up in D.C. and then got a fellowship at Nagoya University to be a research student. And so it basically paid for me to live there for two years. And I got two years to sort of cut my teeth on photography and writing and and storytelling and all those things. And I adored living in Japan. If I had my druthers, I'd probably move back. After that, I joined the Peace Corps And I went to Moldova for two years, and there I did some very in-depth documentary work on former Soviet-era deportees and really learning a lot of history that I had not known otherwise. It was really, really difficult, (laughs) but very, very interesting, and I'm glad I did that, and I even followed up with doing a short stint of Peace Corps work in Georgia, and I ended up staying longer than my Peace Corps tenure position. I I actually ended it early and stayed on and hiked and explored the Georgian mountains for about a year, which was great. So those are the places that I live-lived for fairly long periods of time, somewhat. And a lot of other places that I've been, it's been sort of itinerant's the wrong word, but it's sort of the first word that comes to mind. So I'm going in and out 
of China quite a lot. When I lived in Japan, I did a lot of work in China. France is another place I find myself in quite a lot. And I kind of plot across Europe every once in a while when I when I need a bit of a change from the U.S. And I'm actually considering a move to France in the long term for a variety of reasons. And so I'm studying French. It's always nice to have another language to practice. I spoke Japanese when I was in Japan. I spoke Romanian when I was in Moldova or Moldovan, if you want to split hairs. They have kind of a dialectic way of speaking. And as much as I tried to learn Georgian, that is a very difficult language. So my Georgian was very functional, still sort of to this day. Aspects of Georgian make me laugh. Despite the fact that I'm currently in L.A., I do kind of have this outward view and am planning to move again. If things go really well, I'll start a Ph.D. program somewhere. And your photos speak to recording the moment and the human condition. And you touched upon when you got interested in photography. Could you expand on what it was about photo that made you gravitate towards it? So there's sort of an irony with what I do now mostly in photography. I had gotten into photography because I enjoyed storytelling and was convinced that I couldn't write. And yet, Photography very much paved the way to be becoming a writer, which is primarily what I do now. I do occasionally incorporate photography into my work as need be. It's interesting. In many ways, I'm very visual. Being able to visually move through a story helped me be able to parse it out and write about it in a way that was very understandable. And unfortunately, I don't do a ton of photography anymore. I would love to get in a space to start doing that again, but my artistic habits tend to ebb and flow. So currently, I'm more on kind of a writing and more of a Luddite sort of pen and ink pottery kick at the moment. I do carry around a lot of camera gear for somebody (laughs) who's not doing it on a daily basis. I mean, when it comes to photography, it really is a convalescence of a lot of interest. It's getting to know people who you find interesting and who maybe don't get listened to as often as they should. It's very artistic. It's finding new ways to look at things, which I've been both successful and unsuccessful in doing, as any photographer will tell you. I'm very collaborative when I do photography work, being able to really work with somebody to tell their story and then have them see it is very rewarding. I was just telling a friend of mine who I'm developing a story with in my hometown, actually, that my trajectory when it comes to photography and writing has gone from photojournalism to documentary, to, frankly, kind of advocacy. I really started to embrace the point of view and being able to say, no, this is this person, this is why their voice is important, and look at all these facets of their life. It's sort of a 
I don't want to say empathetic. I, I'll, I'll say compassionate because that's what I'm sort of going for. I try to be very compassionate in my work. In a lot of my projects, I've delved into things so deeply that the only way to maintain the necessary amount of objectivity is to note where my point of view is. That definitely happened in Moldova when I was working with Soviet era deportees because all of these people were there at the end of their lives and they were deported as children. They're not only speaking to their experience, they're speaking to their parents' experience who never had a chance to talk about it because they live behind the Iron Curtain for pretty much their whole adult life. And they were at the end of theirs. There was a need to tell that. But as people do at the end of their lives, I had a couple people I work with died and one of whom I was with and the death process was very much part of the story. So there's a video in there of me experiencing her death. Obviously in that scenario, I can't in any good faith or good ethics say, Hey, this is highly objective. No, it's not objective. Mm -hmm. I was primary care provider and totally not qualified, but I was, and it was what was needed and what the situation was for a woman who was dying of liver and kidney failure. That was probably a result of hepatitis infection. And that was a long and painful process. And so it became very appropriate for me to be present in that particular story. But it is a spectrum. I've obviously done stories where I can very much take an outside viewpoint. The drive to help out the person that I'm working with is always there. I'm very solutions-based in the type of work that I do. When I'm working on something now, I say, yeah, let's talk about the problem, but let's talk about it in a way that we're facilitating a discussion for solutions. Which photographers and writers have influenced you the most? It's interesting because... My relationship to photography is, and the photo industry, frankly, especially photojournalism, is somewhat rot, to put it bluntly. While abroad, really started wanting to talk about the industry and some of the issues inherent therein. It is no secret that the photojournalism and the journalism industries have a lot of very deep-seated issues, which we don't have to get into here. But my education in photojournalism and the sort of greats of photojournalism and my experience firsthand are two very dynamic aspects of my life. And they clash a lot. Kind of goes back to the never meet your heroes thing. Although I wouldn't necessarily say that. I was happy to meet many of my heroes and still talk to them. I'm answering your question in a very roundabout way, but stick with me. (laughs) I started my career in photography very enamored with people like David Allen Harvey 
and Donna Ferrato and Joao Silva and all these guys. And, and these are people whose work I still quite respect. And the interesting thing is once I was able to meet and talk to them in my career, you're really sort of presented with the fact that despite the fact that these people are sort of revered in the industry, they're incredibly human people with human imperfections and egoic imperfections. It's a good measuring tool. You know, Mm -hmm. these are two very good examples of people to look up. And they're two very American examples, actually. And I'll do it chronologically. I have Leonard Freed and his book, Black and White America, and Jamel Shabazz and his book, Back in the Days. And these two books really are linked in a lot of ways. Culturally, historically, in so many ways, I I enjoy both of these for the very reason that I enjoy photography, which is this insistence to look at and listen to perspectives that might not be convenient for you. And also to validate the experiences of people who in this case, in the United States, are not always validated. If I'm going to make a recommendation, I'm going to go ahead and make the Leonard Freed and Janelle Shabazz recommendations. I'm going to give you a long list now. Shomei Tomatsu is a Japanese photographer who is just outstanding. He was one of the first photographers I really got into. He's got a book called Skin of the Nation, and it's all about the life in Japan after the war and after the bomb. It's very visceral in how it talks about post-war life in Japan because there's this push-pull between pretending everything's okay while also being a nation just bleeding with trauma. Uh, And another one on that point is Aiko Hosoe is a phenomenal photographer. And he's much more fictive in his photography. He he tends to kind of create stuff. He'll look back at old Japanese mythology and, and things like that. And then another woman who, since I'm living in L.A., she's an L.A. photographer. She's got an incredibly interesting backstory. But her name is Hannah Kozak. And she did a piece on her mother. It's called He Threw the Last Punch Too Hard. Essentially, her mother was beaten by a partner of hers so badly that it created severe brain damage. And so she's had to live in assisted living facilities for most of her life. And so this is a way for Hannah to really engage with and have a relationship with her mother that's visual and really heartfelt and it's a very well done book incredibly interesting those are a few photographers I have to be kind of careful with the writers because I will go on and on and on and on and on about writers (laughs) when it comes to traveling abroad I think that that's very much informed a lot of the writers that I'm Mm -hmm. interested in 
And one reason I really wanted to study French is because, frankly, I wanted to read Voltaire in French because I find him to be funnier in French than he is in English. I think he's incredibly clever. Micromegas is one of my favorite pamphlets, and the greatest sorrow of my life is that it was never made into a full book. That was kind of the start of sci-fi. They come to Earth, and it's this giant alien who looks at the little specks that are humans and him and his buddy say there's no way those guys could have souls they're too small i find to be this really funny way of looking at things i aspire to be able to read albert camus but he writes in such an idiomatic french style that you have to stop and do a lot of research on the funny ways that people say things in french I started on The Stranger, and I just was like, what is this guy talking about? There's another writer who, he's not French, but he writes in French. He's He sort of straddles the French and Soviet divide, and it comes out in one of his books. His name is Andre Makin. I think the translation is Brief Loves That Last a Lifetime, or something like that. I think Annie Ernaux, who recently won the Nobel Prize, I thought, oh, hey, she writes about stuff I'm really interested in. So I started picking up her books, and I really appreciate the semi-autobiographical style and just how matter-of-fact she is and how she really doesn't shy away from what she writes about. And oftentimes she's writing about pretty difficult or taboo subjects. On the Japanese front, I love the intellectual divide between Yukio Mishima and Oe Kanzaburo. I have always heard but never fact-checked this quote. He said, the only reason I'm here is because Abe Kobo is dead, who's another writer I really love. And they're all absurd. I mean, Yukio Mishima is somewhat absurd, but Abe Kobo is definitely absurd. And Oe Kanzaburo and Yukio Mishima... Right now I'm reading this phenomenally interesting book that was written, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s by a woman named Merlin Stone, and it's called When God Was a Woman, and it's about pre-Christian, pre-Greek religions that were largely feminine, Mm -hmm. and she really tackles this bias that we found in anthropology and and that still persists today that, you know, every time we pick up a statue that's a religious statue from anything over 3000 years ago, they go, Oh, this must be a fertility statue because it's female. And she's sitting here going, no, there's a lot of evidence that this is just the main deity. And so she gets into the anthropology of that and it's, It's very much informed a lot of my artistic work right now and a lot of how I think about other female artists and what drives them and the repeating archetypes you see in a lot of female work, especially modern female work. There are a few. I've got a lot more. From what I've seen on your website, you dive into some intense subject matter what motivates you to keep shooting and and writing? Yeah, the intense subject matter was definitely a theme of my early career. 
I think that was in part interest and in part there's probably some self-validation there, if I'm being honest. And I am still working on pretty intense subjects, so I guess I haven't really kicked the habit. That being said, my tolerance for diving into them as deeply as I used to has really waned. Those are things that they take actual pieces of you with them when they Mm -hmm. leave. At 35, I've been left very tired (laughs) from (laughs) the projects I've done because it's a lot when death is this current in your work. I've watched a lot of people die. I've watched a lot of people recover from tsunamis, for example, have to navigate being deaf and blind in a society that doesn't necessarily give you all the tools you need. So being very isolated. I've looked at poverty very, very deeply. And poverty is an incredibly traumatic subject for anybody that experiences it. That's been a theme. Last year, I did go back to Moldova to see the effects of the invasion of Ukraine on Moldova and look at the refugee crisis through the lens of the people that were helping. And that was wonderful, but I was sort of surprised to find that I still have a lot of deep trauma associated with that country, and it did bubble to the surface, and it made the trip very difficult to navigate. I spent two years listening to people's stories about being displaced and having their family die and losing everything and losing everything more than once, even. I I was reminded that those stories do linger despite the amount of work you do to be able to cope with them. That was an interesting lesson. I I need to very much keep an eye on myself when I do my Eastern European travel, just because the history there really hits me pretty hard when I move through it. And it is very present in the culture in some difficult and problematic ways. So I guess they do still come up. They sort of at this point find me. I don't look for them. It's just that people know my skill set and my interest. And so I kind of have the policy that if somebody wants to tell their story, then I'm happy to be the person to help them do it. But I definitely am balancing it with work and my own personal life. So it moves a lot slower than it used to. I'm not a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 23-year-old anymore. (laughs) The pace of projects has changed very much. Are you working on anything else? I keep very busy while still trying to have a fair amount of free time. I've been lucky that my job throughout my whole career has always had a bit of an advocacy tilt to it in one way or another, or at least it's been able to allow me to participate in policy and things like that, whether or not it's from the journalistic point of view or more of an advocacy point of view. I write quite a a lot about biotech and healthcare. Mm -hmm. When I had come back to the United States, I had attempted to really dive into the opioid epidemic and did 
and that got me into healthcare writing. The larger project I had intended to work on, I was just too burnt out to do and complete. So I'm sitting on a lot of interviews for a variety of projects, frankly. It's great to be able to learn about cutting edge science and then be able to work on pieces that are both informative and targeted to people who can affect change, hopefully. (laughs) But as you know, working in the policy space, you're working in the policy space. You've got to really juggle a lot of things when you do that. That's been very interesting. That's my kind of job job. I may be moving into very soon food sustainability in Eastern Europe, so I'll be back on that topic. This project is currently kind of on hiatus because we're sort of thinking about how to expand the publication, but I did work on the Ukraine Stories publication, which is just a Substack blog with a friend of mine who is an American actively living in Germany. He's got a Fulbright he's completing. And we did dig into the deeper issues of the refugee crisis out of Ukraine. He has a ton of connections there. So it really was kind of by those who were experiencing it. And we'll see how that morphs in the future. I think we're going to expand the umbrella to include more than just the Ukraine stuff. I've given myself an opportunity to get more into my fine art, if you will. <laughs> Sounds a little hoity-toity, but I've, I've done a lot of pen and ink work just privately throughout my adult life. And I'm starting to take that a little bit more seriously because it's one of the few things that I think actually is a style that I've got. So I've been working on that, and I've been learning pottery, (laughs) which is very middle-aged of me. And I'm not good at it, but I do enjoy it. So there's been definitely a balance of the serious stuff with the fun stuff. I also... I do a lot of hiking, which I sometimes incorporate into work. I used to write hiking guides, and I have a lot of written notes and journaling from when I did the John Muir Trail through the Sierras for three weeks. I'd like to do that one again and then possibly do a write-up of that, but that's kind of a longer-term project. And currently, I think that's all the projects I'm working on right now. Hopefully there's no more than I've forgotten about. You mentioned that you're looking into moving to France next. Uh, Whereabouts in France are you looking at? I've always been a big fan of Paris. There are two great ironies in my life that I enjoy Paris and I enjoy L.A. because I was always convinced I would never like either of those cities. And it turns out I, I really quite enjoy being there. I came to L.A. planning to only stay a month and it's two years later and I'm still here. And Paris, I've always just kind of clicked with. It's easy to meet and talk to people there. It's easy to make friends. I have a lot of friends there already. It's very walkable. I'm a big fan of this weird antique underbelly (laughs) that they've got going on there. You can sort of get lost in the 
catacombs of the flea markets. Every time I go there, I'm always a little bit heartbroken when I leave. So I thought, okay, well, let's see if the art thing can take off a little bit. And if I can get into a funded PhD program, then why not? (laughs) Why not go study art in Paris? Seems like a fun thing to do. When you have lived abroad, did you engage with other Americans living overseas? Did you find that you all faced similar challenges living overseas? I didn't hang out with a lot of Americans when I was abroad. I did. It's not like I didn't have American friends. But, you know, when I was in Japan, my community was very Japanese, but it was also very Middle Eastern and North African and Australian. Australians are always going up to Japan. In Georgia, I was happiest with Georgians. And in France, my friends are mostly French or they're from Eastern Europe sometimes. In Eastern Europe, I lived in a village, so all my friends were 70 or 80-year-old women, which was great. I became what the Peace Corps calls the sight rat, which is, you know, I, I never left my village. I really got pretty inundated with my life there. But obviously, I would leave and hang out occasionally with volunteers and still have volunteer friends that I'm very deeply connected to. I tend to integrate. And I think part of it is I like living in another language. I like the opportunity to not think or speak in English. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? I think that the most interesting aspect of my time abroad has been how foreign it has made life in the United States for me. If I ever wrote a travel memoir, it would be called Home is a Foreign Country, and it would be because that statement goes both ways. You're either living abroad or you feel foreign at home, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's good to always challenge your own point of view. Great final thought. Thank you for chatting with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.